Straw Hut Media. In school, they continue to teach history as a way to examine the past and how it has shaped relationships between societies and people. But how much queer history was covered in these lessons? Did your professor or teacher ever mention the two-spirit people within indigenous nations? Or how transgressions of gender norms caused massacres by the Spanish conquistadors? Today, we're going back in time again to explore the rich history of queer people throughout time in the U.S. This is the first chapter of our six-part series on our nation's queer history. So, if you like what you hear, be sure to listen to the rest of this story with Dr. Eric Cervini, an American historian with specialized knowledge of LGBTQ history in the United States. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Hi, my name is Dr. Eric Cervini. I'm a historian of LGBTQ plus history. When Dr. Eric Cervini arrived at Harvard as an undergrad, he discovered not only that he could live as an openly gay man, but that he could also study queer history specifically. I didn't think that I was gonna study gay history. Um, and then I saw the movie Milk, which is an amazing movie, um, and got me realized first, how did I never hear of Harvey Milk before if I'm a gay man? And second, who else is out there? Um, who, what other stories have we uh, not been telling ourselves because uh, LGBTQ plus people have always been erased from history? I think it's an important part of our national identity and, and who we are and the, 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 our culture is um, queer culture. And it's always been a part from the beginning, from day one, since humanity emerged. Um, there have always been queer people out there, and I think discovering that and, and telling these stories is something that we have to do as, as a, a, a modern-day civilization. For now, we'll start at the beginning. And when we talk about American history, that means Turtle Island, what the indigenous tribes called North America long before the Spanish, Portuguese, and English ever set foot here. I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear uh, how incredible their conception of gender was for thousands of years before Europeans showed up at the, their doorstep and said, oh, actually, there's just two genders. Hey, how are you all? Um, Greetings, my relatives, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, for me to be here to share some of my teachings and knowledge around what is Two-Spirit and who is Two-Spirit. Um, my government name is Harlan Pruden. My Indian name is uh, Waka Nomani. Harlan Pruden is a scholar and activist and a member of the Cree Nation, the indigenous population of modern-day Alberta, Canada. Some of our nations had two genders, while others had three. My nation had four. Some nations had up to seven different genders. With more than 500 federally recognized tribes present in the U.S. today, you can imagine there were many different names in many different languages to describe genders. When Westerners came into Native communities and saw people who didn't fit the binary, they lacked the vocabulary to describe what they were seeing. 
Until 1990, anthropologists used the word bardajes, a derivative of bardajes, meaning passive sodomites. And sorry if I didn't get the pronunciation right. That's where some of these offensive words came from. Now we have an umbrella term that we use for Native people who do not fit into the Western gender binary. That term is two-spirit. Someone who has both a male and female or masculine and feminine essence within them, right, or or spirit. But two-spirit is not the same as trans and not necessarily an identity in itself. Harlan explained. It's a community organizing tool or strategy or another way of doing that around descriptive language rather than using Western identities, is two-spirit is the intersection of those who embody diverse sexual sexualities, genders, gender expressions and gender roles, and who are indigenous to Turtle Island. And um, so it's a way to organize though that community. And so if you're not indigenous to Turtle Island and you don't have this diverse sexualities and gender, gender expression and gender roles, you cannot use the term two-spirit. But so what we do is we organize under two-spirit, and it's a pan-Indigenous concept. Harlan spoke to their own experience as a member of the Cree Nation. For myself, I would have been known um, as an Ayakwe, um, and that would be the, you know, for the male-assigned two-spirit person. And that's how we would identify that, that gender. Within different societies, two-spirit people had special, often spiritual roles that their unique identity made them capable of. You know, for us as Crees, is, um, how we formed our societies, there were two big dominant camps or two big dominant societies. There was a woman's camp and a men's camp. Men hunted, women gathered. And also within that public sphere, um, because of the division of labor, uh, around our genders, uh, women weren't allowed into men's camp and a man wasn't allowed into a woman's camp. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, I'd like to suspend judgment and say that's just the way that we formed our society. That's just a statement of being. Now, if there was ever imbalance or disharmony amongst those two camps, um, a man couldn't walk over to the woman's camp and say, hey, woman, what's going on? And a woman couldn't walk over to a man's camp because right? they weren't allowed in those spheres. But us as a Yaque, we were often schooled in both of the techne, the techne of gathering, the techne of hunting, and we had, were the only people that had unfettered and equal access to both of those camps. And so if there was ever disharmony or discord or imbalance, we would provide this mediation or this mediator role where we would float over to the women's camp or like, hey, women, what's going on? What's happening? We would go over to the men's camp and we would say, hey, men, what's happening? What's going on? And then we'd go back and forth and we could negotiate and navigate um, that conflict or that work for a resolution. A man couldn't do this, a napueo. A woman couldn't do this, a square. Just us as a yaque could do this. And so we had this like fluidity. And I think out of that, and many of our two-spirit relatives were also known as being uh, the medicine people. And I believe where that came from was that if we were good at negotiating these spaces between the Napueo and the Esquia camps, you know, we were also good at navigating and negotiating between the seen and the unseen world or the physical and the spiritual dimension. 
And I think that's where, you know, and where many of our Two-Spirit relatives were known as being medicine people because they could navigate and negotiate and be the link between the, the, those two different worlds. The Zuni tribe, which occupies present-day New Mexico and had occupied that land for thousands of years, used the word Lahamana to refer to a third gender. And the Zuni tribe uh, believed that gender was built over time, right? You were born, uh, in their words, you were born raw, and then you were cooked into adults. So um, gender wasn't something that was fixed from the very beginning. Um, so, and a lamina is someone who has both a male and female, or masculine and feminine, essence within them, right, or, or spirit. The most famous Lahamana was a person called Wewa, who was born in 1849. Wewa was born with male characteristics, but even from a very young age, showed interest and excellence in weaving and pottery, which were traditionally female activities. And it's really, really hard to capture that concept in the English language, because when other Zuni members would describe Wewa's gender, they would say, she is a man, right? So it's very, you know, of course, we're using a female pronoun, but then uh, the, the object itself is, is, is male. So it's hard to, to, to capture that now. In 1879, Wewa began a friendship with an anthropologist named Matilda Koch Stevenson, who wrote a lot about their relationship. When she referred to Wewa, she switched between male and female pronouns until 1904, when she wrote in her diary, as the writer could never think of her faithful and devoted friend in any other light, she will continue to use the feminine gender when referring to Wewa. Then, in 1886, Wewa accompanied Stevenson to Washington, D.C. to educate the public about Zuni culture. They demonstrated weaving on a loom set up on the National Mall performed a traditional dance at the National Theater, and even met the Speaker of the House and President Grover Cleveland, whom Wewa presented with a gift. As they traveled around Washington, D.C., one newspaper reported, society has had recently a notable addition in the shape of an Indian princess of the Zuni tribe. Princess Wawa goes about everywhere at all of the receptions and teas of Washington wearing her native dress the media kind of fell in love with Weiwa. Um, one quote, it says, her features, especially her mouth, are rather large, her figure and carriage rather masculine, right? It didn't even connect to them that maybe um, in American culture, they would have been assigned male. Sadly, Weiwa's attempts to bridge the divide between Westerners and their own culture did not end well. In 1892, relations between the Zuni people and the Westerners were becoming more and more strained. I think it's, it ends up being a, somewhat of a tragic story uh, because Weiwa was arrested for uh, protecting a Zuni governor from American soldiers who were um, invading their land, essentially, um, and was arrested and imprisoned for a month and then died just a few years later. When Weiwa passed away in 1896, their friend Matilda Koch Stevenson was among those by their side. Later, she wrote about that experience. She said, Weiwa called her over and said, tell all my friends in Washington, goodbye. Tell President Cleveland, my friend, goodbye. Weiwa may be the most well-known two-spirit person, but there were many, many more. Harlan told us about them. 
So there is Wewa from the Zuni Nation. There is Hastinkwa from the Navajo or Dene Nation. There is Ozawadib from the um, the Anishinaabe Nation. Um, oh, Otish from the Crow Nation. These are all male-assigned individuals. There was Wewa uh, uh, Barchiampe from the Crow Nation, a female-assigned two-spirit um, uh, warrior. Um, what is really cool about the um, uh, Barchiampe is um, there are, I think, 13 fires that make up the Crow Nation. And we and uh, Barchiampe was known for being for their bravery and being an amazing tacticianer of war. And so Barchiampe became the chief of one fire and then became a chief of chiefs, became a chief of all 13 fires for the Crow Nation. And they were female assigned. Rarely do us as two-spirit people get our experiences centered and focused. And so this time and the space and place that we are talking about two-spirit does my heart so good and makes my heart sing. So thank you so much. How we say a formal thank you in Cree is or informally we would just say hi hi. When we come back, the violence of the Spanish conquistadors. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked with Harlan Pruden about two-spirit people in native cultures. Now, we'll talk about the effects of the Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors on native people specifically regarding gender and sexuality. Immediately after 1492, right, Columbus sailed ocean blue, as we're all told in, in elementary school, and, you know, started this kind of reign of terror on the continent and imposing their own uh, gender norms upon these Native Americans and in a very, very violent way. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Here in the U.S., we've celebrated Christopher Columbus as the hero who bravely discovered America. The actual history of Columbus Day is complicated, but it's fair to say that now in 2021, we're ready to admit he kicked off one of the most brutal and violent periods in history. Columbus was Italian, but he was commissioned by the monarchs of Spain to find a new route to India. After Columbus landed, many more Spanish conquistadors followed to claim land, establish settlements, and bring back slaves and resources. And they did it all through brute force. What a brave thing to do. What I think is particularly interesting is they used this concept of sodomy, right? The sin of sodomy uh, to justify some of their violence and their rampages. So when they uh, wrote back home to, you know, the emperor, uh, to the Spanish emperor, some of these conquistadors would say, oh, well, it's okay that I'm massacring these civilizations because they're all engaging in sodomy. In 1519, when the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez arrived in modern-day Mexico, he wrote back home to Emperor Charles V, we have learnt and been informed for sure that they are all sodomites and use that abominable sin. So if you're a king hearing back from one of your explorers in a new world that you have absolutely no data on to begin with, and you hear that there are these abominable 
sexually deviant creatures, um, then you're not going to feel so bad if you also hear that they just killed hundreds or thousands of these same people. Um, and so it was a pretty messed up uh, approach, but I think very strategic on the part of the conquistadors to, to get what they wanted, which is power, right? And they um, were, were bloodthirsty. Eric says that when you look back at the content of the letters the conquistadors wrote home, the thing that shocked them most was actually not sexual activity. Because chances are they didn't see people actually engaging in sodomy. They didn't see Native Americans engaging in sodomy. They saw people wearing what they considered, what the, the Europeans considered as uh, women's dresses, right? So they saw what they thought were quote-unquote cross-dressing. Another conquistador, Bernal Diaz del Castillo, wrote that he saw boys dressed in women's dresses who were earning their living in that perverted occupation. And so for them, that meant sodomy, right? That's They couldn't possibly grasp that uh, maybe there wasn't uh, just a binary between men and women, but instead they were uh, a completely different gender. They didn't understand what they saw. So they dealt with it the way they dealt with everything, with violence. The Spanish and the Portuguese conquistadors established what they call sodomy laws. The punishment? Being burned alive. And it happened a lot. If you've ever wondered about the origin of the words faggot or flamer, it's here. Another famous conquistador was Vasco Nunez de Balboa, who traveled to the New World in 1500. Thirteen years later, when he crossed the Isthmus of Panama, he became the first European to see the Pacific from the New World. He was probably the worst guy of them all. He was just a, a terrible person. Um, and he wrote that he was shocked by, uh, quote, young men in women's apparel, smooth and effeminately decked. Two days before Balboa reached the Pacific, he killed 600 Native Americans who were just defending their people. And then afterwards, he took 40 of these suspected sodomites uh, and fed them to his dogs. And there's a really uh, horrifying uh, 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 illustration of that that an artist made a few decades later that is just terrifying. We don't know how often this happened. We can only guess um, how many times uh, this idea of sexual deviance or um, transgression of gender norms may have resulted in, in a massacre like this. Like Columbus, Vasco Nunez de Balboa's atrocities were also glossed over, and he was proclaimed a hero rather than a murderer. There are lakes, parks, streets, cities, and even schools named for Balboa. We are honoring someone who uh, committed essentially genocide, but also targeted in a very, very brutal way, um, people who would have been living uh, non-binary or um, sexually different lives and who may have been creating their own histories um, that we now have lost. Um, and I think it's, it's a tragedy that, that we you know, continue to, to, to honor someone who uh, really committed atrocity. We're honoring a dickhead. Yeah, we're honoring a complete asshole. You can say that, I don't mind. When we come back, how the British colonies dealt with queer individuals within society.
Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about the brutality the conquistadors inflicted on the native lands they invaded. Now, we'll move on to the British colonies and how they approached queer people within society. What's interesting with these British colonies is they were slightly less preoccupied with this concept of sodomy because they actually had a law uh, about it. In 1533, England passed its buggery statute, uh, which required proof of penetration and witnesses in the prosecution of sodomy cases. So the colonies were bound by that law. This law made sodomy cases much harder to prosecute, but there were still trials and you could still be found guilty of attempted sodomy. You know, only a few years after uh, the the Mayflower landed in, in Plymouth, uh, the Puritans found two men, uh, and I love the quote uh, from this, they found them guilty of lewd behavior by often spending their seed one upon another. Uh, so we, we know that there was definitely gay sex going on, right? The Puritans were uh, engaging in same-sex uh, behavior. Uh, but those two men, because they didn't have evidence of penetration, uh, those guys avoided the death penalty, right? Instead, the, one of the guys who was caught uh, with seed uh, on him was whipped and burned on the shoulder with a hot iron and banished from the colony. So still sucks. Uh, no one wants that, uh, but not quite as bad and as brutal as, as some of these Spanish conquistadors. I'm interested in how they they caught him with the seed upon him. Either he was just like, oh, I didn't notice. Or they were like, knew it. And then <laughs> I, like stormed in. My guess is someone walked in on them. Things were very small back then. A lot of people were sharing spaces. So um, my guess is they were they were caught in, in the act. Sometimes they were convicted on attempted sodomy. So that was still a crime, but not punishable by death. Remember, the Puritans had broken from the Catholic Church and had new sets of beliefs, still brutal, but not quite as brutal as the fire and brimstone of Catholics. They believed that homosexual behavior, like all sins, uh, was a temptation for everyone. Uh, so as long as you confessed and repented, you had a chance of having your sentence lowered. It wasn't as if, you know, you, uh, if you were a homosexual, then you would be executed because they didn't see it that way. They saw it as uh, an action that you may be tempted to do, that everyone may be tempted to do. Uh, but as long as you didn't act on it or as long as you repented, then you had a chance of salvation. Too late. Did it. I'm sorry, though. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Super you may sorry. still be whipped. They may pull out the iron, but... You could do it tomorrow and then again be like, super sorry again. This is really frustrating, <laughs> isn't it? Well, one actually very interesting uh, situation, one case that is really interesting, I think uh, rings uh, true and relevant today is uh, in terms of class, how they approached it. And so one guy who was very wealthy in Connecticut in 1640, he was accused of making uh, pretty violent sexual advances on his male servants. The town leaders investigated him and rather than bringing him to court, decided to reprimand him privately. It wasn't until his third offense that he went to trial and was found guilty of attempted sodomy. His only punishment was that if he did it again, he would lose his estate. That was it. Um, and so I Which think- Which would have been probably a lot. It would have been a lot, but not quite the same as the death penalty or even being banished from, from the colony. Um, and so very similar to Greek and Roman times, and I think just like today, uh, if you're a wealthy white guy who's preying on lower classes, then chances are you'll get away with it, which I think is a tragedy now, and it was a tragedy back then. 
like in Greek and Roman times, the British colonies were not as concerned with same-sex relationships between women. But even though sodomy laws were directed at men, women weren't completely off the hook. The only colony that had women included in its sodomy law was the one in New Haven in modern-day Connecticut. In 1642, a servant named Elizabeth Johnson was fined and whipped for, quote, unseemly practices betwixt her and another maid. Another punishment that uh, the Plymouth colony uh, uh, doled out when two married women were accused of lewd behavior in bed with one another. Uh, they had to confess in front of the entire colony uh, their unchaste behavior. Uh, and so uh, they may not have brought out the, the hot iron, but they certainly were, were humiliated. Eric says that he believes women were not punished as harshly as men simply because the colonies were a male-dominated society. If you are in power, chances are you're a man. And the people you want to keep in their place are also men, right? So this concept of accusing someone of sodomy or of being a sexual deviant or a pervert, uh, that wasn't as useful if you were trying to keep women in their place because women already occupied a lower uh, class. In fact, the British colonies were much more concerned with cross-dressing than same-sex behavior among women, though cross-dressing laws targeted both men and women. I think one of the most interesting instances is uh, there was uh, a servant in Jamestown, Virginia, who was known as both Thomas or Thomasine Hall. Uh, and they claim to be both a man and a woman. So they may, may have been intersex. We don't know. Thomasine was raised in England as a girl, but they decided to present as male when they wanted to join the military. So they changed to Thomas. After returning from military service, Thomas went back to Thomasine to work in feminine trades, and then back to Thomas after moving to the Jamestown colony in search of work. Once there, they switched back and forth between presenting male and female and were rumored to have both male and female sexual partners. But that was just too much for the colonial authorities. They freaked out. And in 1629, a general court ruled that Hall wasn't allowed to switch between dress. And instead, they had to wear both a man's breeches and a women's apron at the same time. They could not switch. So even when there were these less clear-cut cases of uh, transgressing gender norms, they tried to uh, they tried to impose order and control and preventing people from living their authentic selves. And I think that's something we still have today. And it's a shame uh, that you know we had to come into this this space that was, occupied by uh, these cultures for thousands and thousands of years that had this really advanced, phenomenal approach to gender and then imposed this really oppressive gender system that we now are obsessed with and continue to enforce today. On the same land the Two-Spirit people thrived in their original communities, the attitudes towards gender and sexuality regressed as a result of strict interpretations of Judeo-Christian concepts. I think when you look at the very early writings of the Bible, the very first drafts of the Bible, for example, uh, this, the sin of Sodom. When you hear of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the origin of the word sodomy, you think, oh, they were committing sexual 
or sexually deviant behavior. But in reality, uh, for thousands of years, the sin of Sodom was that they were raping their guests, right? There was inhospitality and, and, and rape. And then only, you know, a thousand years later, did some philosophers say that, oh, actually, the sin was this homosexual behavior. The Bible itself is not responsible for the damage done in its name. Instead, it's the way the powerful people present the contents in order to justify their violent actions. What you see throughout history is Europeans interpreting their scripture in order to uh, advance their own power, right? And I think uh, as soon as this concept as sodomy, as a sin, arose, then different leaders saw it as an opportunity to label uh, minority groups or to uh, to create a distraction uh, from some of their own domestic problems. If you have these sinful sodomites running around, then uh, people aren't really going to care if the economy is doing terribly, right? Or if there's a famine or something like that. Um, so I think they saw religion, these rulers saw religion as an excuse, just like uh, the conquistadors saw sodomy as an excuse to to further their own uh, power. You saw that also throughout European history. And then also, I think today, um, the, the cultural war that is going on and has been going on uh, is a distraction from what's actually happening in our country. So what would you like to, obviously, this is an election year, so it's a big year. If you had to like name a few things that in terms of like gender, that we could look back to our history and go back to that. What would those things be that would make our culture better now? As a culture that exists in a space that once belonged to these vibrant, diverse other cultures is to be asking questions. I think we have to say, all right, I know if we lived in a completely just historical world, we wouldn't be here, right? We would not be occupying this space. So let's take a step back and ask questions. What can we do to promote understanding of what could have been uh, in terms of gender? And there's this, I think, concept, especially in academia, that there's all these new theories of how we understand gender and, and queerness, when in reality, they're not new at all. And I think if we sat and listened uh, to people who have been understanding gender differently from us from for thousands of years, then we would have a lot to learn. And when you started studying history, right, I think even in the gay community, there is a lot of femophobia, right? Because, I mean, you can see it on Instagram. If you go through someone who, let's say, is androgynous in the way they dress, there will be a lot of gay people being super critical, Right. Did the study of history change, as a gay man, your perspective on those things, right? Like gay guys who wear heels and a dress. Do you feel like you've learned for yourself and changed by studying these points in time? I think the best part about studying history is that it promotes empathy, which is allowing ourselves and forcing ourselves to take someone else's shoes, taking a step in their shoes and saying, okay, by studying what happened to gays in America, we can understand how difficult it might be for us to, to be our authentic selves now. 
But what it also allows us to do is look at other marginalized groups and say, okay, as a gay man, I understand what it feels like to be repressed. So let me see if I can imagine being different in a different sense in being a person of color also, right? Then maybe we can say, all right, I understand where they're coming from and I'm going to sit here and listen uh, because I understand my own repression, but I may have uh, privilege in other ways. Uh, and history allows us to say, okay, there's a lot of commonality between different marginalized groups. And now as pride is now a sexy, cool thing, it's our responsibility to say, okay, what other groups have been historically marginalized? Let's talk to them, let's listen to them, and then let's help because ultimately we all have the same enemy. There's always going to be that person or institution in power that's trying to hold us back and use us as a scapegoat for other issues. It's been a year since Eric joined us on the podcast. Since then, his first queer history book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, became a New York Times bestseller and a critic's choice. He is currently one of three finalists for a Pulitzer Prize in history for 2021. But it doesn't end there for Eric. He serves on the board of directors of the Harvard Gender and Sexuality Caucus and on the board of advisors at the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. And then he goes home to his drag queen boyfriend and their dog, Moo Bear. I also have a Instagram show called The Magic Closet, where we spend each week looking at different parts of our own queer history. Uh, and you can catch that at Instagram at Eric Cervini. That's E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V-I-N-I. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. Yes, it's that easy. It's at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, Ryan Tillotson, and Caitlin McDaniel. Edited by Sebastian Alcala and Daniel Ferreira. Sound mixing by Sebastian Alcala. Was it helpful when I repeated myself? Very. Okay. We'll just cut that part yeah. out and we'll fix it. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I won't. Sebastian will. And we have to tell Sebastian how great they are. We love you, Sebastian. There you go.